0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Parley, the Hindu's weekly podcast where we attempt to have two contrarian views on one of the topical issues that is being discussed in the public discourse. We are on the last day of COP28 that is being held in Dubai. In fact, we've just got news that it has been concluded and that the uh, UAE's uh, consensus document has been adopted without any changes. We are joined by two experts in their domain, uh, Karthik Ganesan, who works for the CEEW, and Harjit Singh, who works with Climate Action Network, uh, who is actually right now in Dubai, joining us, making time to join us. Uh, So thank you indeed, Harjit, for doing this. Like I discussed with you both before we began, uh, you know, when we were discussing the, the podcast uh, topic, in fact, you know, since this is right at the moment where, when uh, when the negotiations have been concluded, I would first want both of you to introduce yourself and um, talk a little bit more about the work you do, beginning with Harjeet uh, and then Karthik.
1: Uh, hi Kunal, thank you very much for having me and a pleasure to be on the program with uh, Karthik. Um, I am uh, working with Climate Action Network as head of global political strategy, and I'm also a global engagement director with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative. I'm based in New Delhi. And as you said, I'm right now in Dubai, have been following um, COP28 negotiations as civil society. We engage very closely uh, with negotiators. And uh, we have been pushing really hard on some of the uh, outcomes, particularly on Fossil fuel phase out, uh, adaptation. Uh, so, we had a big agenda on, on global goal on adaptation. And of course, uh, it started with uh, operationalizing the loss and damage fund.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Hajveev. On to you, Kartik. Hi. Uh, I work with the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. We're a think tank that's based in New Delhi. Um, we're about 13 years old. Uh, my own focus has been sort of looking at uh, legacy issues when it comes to. Uh, uh, the, you know, the Indian uh, energy system, primarily the power sector you know, and its dependence on thermal generation and the distribution companies and, you know, their uh, financial health. But over time, of course, this is spilled over to um, other areas where, you know, energy has an implication on environment, not just through CO2, but also through uh, local pollutants, which are called criteria pollutants. So I'm primarily a researcher in these spaces, but uh, uh, also lead work on industrial sustainability as well as uh, sustainable mobility uh, within CEW. Excellent. Thank you so much for that introduction.
0: Let me first begin with Harjit. Harjit, what's taken place at COP? If you can give us a good quick summary of uh, the sort of the negotiations. This has been probably the one of the most consequential and also one of the most controversial of COPs that have taken place in its entire Uh, almost three decade history. And um, uh, what we know well, and that has been discussed widely in the news is the fact that this is the first time that a petro state is uh, heading uh, COP negotiations. Uh, I mean, the president actually is the head of uh, the country's uh, preeminent oil company. Um, And that there is that there have been news reports, of course, that um, there have been a lot of pushback on a complete phase down, face out of fossil fuels. Um, so maybe if you could set up just what has happened there, and then we can take we can go over to uh, you know India's own role there and and what we can expect from the country.
1: So, Kunal, just a few few hours ago, um, the decision was gaveled down, and so in fact we are um, several hours late. We should have finished at six p.m. Dubai time. Uh, But uh, the decision was uh, announced around 11 a.m. next day. So uh, there has been a delay, and this is a complex process. And as you said, this COP has been very different for many, many reasons. Um, Yes, um, in a petro state uh, headed by um, an oil uh, company chief, uh, but at the same time, if you look at the outcomes, uh, it has been unprecedented and historic in many ways. Number one, on the day one itself of the COP, we had a huge decision on operationalizing the loss and damage fund, which was a hard-won victory last year at COP27, a decision to establish, but the operationalization had to be done. No other COP has been able to finalize that decision on the day one. In fact, even the adoption of agenda takes time and which we were expecting even this COP to face. Uh, But that was uh, very smoothly um, gaveled through. And uh, with the delay, finally, we got a decision uh, uh, text from COP28. And it's historic because for the first time, it talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner. Uh, Now, of course, as civil society, our demand was fossil fuel phase out. Um, From that perspective, it is watered down by saying transitioning away because fossil fuel phase out would have been far more definite and concrete, Uh, but that's not the case. But then there is also a language which says the accelerating action in this critical decade and also achieving net zero by 2050 in keeping with science the reason i'm emphasizing these elements because in the previous drafts many of these elements were not there such as critical decade or keeping with science after a lot of push from vulnerable countries uh, this has been brought to the final text uh, there has been uh, many changes on coal related um, section finally the language says accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power um, so that's about fossil fuels but then there is a big challenge that we see in the text where a lot of um, mention of so-called zero and low emission technologies such as the renewables that's fine but nuclear abatement and removal technologies and carbon capture and utilization storage um, and low carbon hydrogen production Uh, which we find that these are massive loopholes, which are going to provide cover to fossil fuel industry to continue and and prolong uh, its business. Uh, And then of course, the big issue related to fossil fuels and renewable energy, uh, where renewable energy uh, target uh, is now uh, tripled uh, until 2030 has to be achieved and doubling the global average um, annual rate of energy efficiency. However finance has not been put on the table. And that is a massive, massive concern, especially for developing countries who are largely left on their own.
0: Right. That's an excellent setup for uh, uh, my next question. Uh, It's interesting that you just mentioned about coal face down, because that was uh, the controversy uh, at COP26 at Glasgow, if I remember uh, correctly, when India... Uh, pushed for the language to be altered from face out of facing out of coal to phasing down, and there was considerable resistance to it. But uh, eventually, the um, you know the uh, the document was adopted. It's interesting because one of the criticism that India and many other developing countries had at that point was the fact that. It only addressed coal and not the entirety of fossil fuel, uh, and that coal, oil, and gas were in fact the largest uh, emitters, and and the larger consumption was taking place of those in the developed world, and it was sort of being called as a sort of a hip, hypocritical position uh, of the by the developed world at that point. Um, Karthik, if I can come to you on this, uh, you know, CEW has as. Uh, worked very closely with the Indian government uh, on the setting up of the International Solar Alliance. You've also worked on several other um, sort of climate mitigation and uh, global climate concerns, particularly uh, positioning India. Uh, Would you say that the position that, uh, uh, you know, the current president has taken on Um, not entirely as Harjit said uh, not entirely phasing out fossil fuel but rather let's say phasing down fossil fuel uh, similar to how coal was adopted is that a a reasonable outcome given where we are because we've already now um, you know underscored the fact that we aren't uh, going to be achieving 1.5 degree from pre-industrial level and this year has been the hottest in 125,000 years, if I'm not uh, mistaken, by one of the studies. Is this a reasonable outcome or do you think um, something more could have been expected? Uh, and particularly, what uh, do you think is the role of developing countries
2: in accelerating uh, the ambition? Right. So just to clarify, I think, I mean, I just to add on from what uh, where harjeet left, uh, it's actually phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies is the only thing that's phasing out. Really, it's transitioning away from fossil fuels in the energy system, and phasing down unabated coal use. So this is the language. So it's it's a it's a maze of words. So right, there's three different levels. So the only thing where there's real clarity is subsidies for fossil fuels need to go. No, but the reality is this that you know if you don't have alternatives to fossil fuels that are being developed actively in many of these countries you'll have to ultimately keep subsidizing them because a large part of the population still relies on subsidies to consume energy. So, you know, um, without the active phase-out of these commodities, phasing out subsidies alone is very, very unlikely. So having said that, is this a desirable outcome? Um, Certainly not. I think this is, you know, um, pretty weak in terms of the overall, you know, um, adoption of uh, ambition. Uh, And as Harjit said, the lack of financing will again be something that developing countries will repeatedly keep bringing back to the table and also will be a reason for a lack of action on their part. Now, this is where, you know, um, it becomes a little dicey, which is that we are going to be at the receiving end of the impacts of climate change, no matter what happens from here on, whether financing comes in or not. Um, You know, it looks like we are on track for, well, certainly 1.5C because, uh, you know, from what I remember um harjit please correct me uh, i think 1.5c is not anymore really on the table 2c uh, presumably still is um even at these levels um certainly you know we india will face impacts and uh, and it's going to have costs in the indian economy and the reality is that india is a net importer of a, a lot of these fossil fuels specifically for um, 80 80% plus of our, our petroleum uh, demand more than uh, or nearly 50% of our or more than 50% of our gas demand and sizable amount of our coal demand, you know, nearly 15 to 20 percent is also important. So given all of this, uh, it is certainly in India's interest to try and see how can we um, bring together uh, our industry uh, leaders, our financing ecosystem to be able to channel the resources uh, to, uh, to hasten the transition domestically, to create jobs, to create opportunities, to create industrial value add within the economy. It's happening in uh, in some way, um, Kunal, right? There is through the, the PLI scheme, uh, which, you know, which speaks to specifically solar, as well as to batteries, uh, battery tech. There's R&D that's, you know, sort of being funded as well in some ways, in some of these for, you know, advanced cell chemistries. But it's not happening at a scale at which India really needs it. Um, and primarily because, um, at least my thinking is, is that, the dependence on the current energy ecosystem for a lot of government of India's revenues is significant and the states. And, you know, they're finding it sort of hard to kind of keep one going at a certain pace and to maintain their revenues while continuing to support uh, other newer forms of technology. This is a bit of a catch-22 for us, but I think India needs to be very clear that the impacts of climate change are going to be far more than, you know, what we have to gain by continuing our sustenance. And, you know, it has potentially the the, uh, the ability to undo some of our developmental outcomes if uh, climate change is, you know, far worse than what we anticipated to be already. Yeah.
0: Right. Thanks, Karthik. Uh, you know, uh, coming back to one of the points you made, Harjit, uh, about uh, just how consequential this uh, particular COP was because the loss and damage fund was finally operationalized. But then it has been operationalized after decades. And then... You know, and it is still not quite um, clear, aside from the fact that the World Bank would be uh, sort of uh, the holding bank, if you will, uh, just the modalities of how it will be operated and the amount of money pledged uh, is not even close to the initial 100 billion that was spoken about in terms of loss and damage. One, that's one aspect. Secondly, um sort of taking a, a, a point from what karthik just said uh, much of the technology to develop renewable energy while uh, many of the developing economies including india emerging economies in particular have really fared well uh, much of you know there's a lot of r and d taking place um, renewable energy efficiencies are rising costs of uh, particularly solar has fallen although Um, You know, things like offshore wind, where India is positioning itself to be a sort of a leader as well. In fact, off the state of Tamil Nadu, there is a a new uh, project coming up. While all of this is taking place, it it just seems like developing countries don't quite still have enough of the technology and enough support to develop uh, their uh, renewable sectors and to really also enhance supply chains. Um, which will which will be effectively decarbonized. So how do you uh, you know how do you address this in in order to achieve the sort of outcomes that you would uh, that you were talking about?
1: So Kunal, I would like to go back to uh, what Karthik briefly mentioned about uh, one point five C. And of course, you know at at a meta level, we are not happy with the overall package that we have got uh, as a decision because as I said, on one hand, Uh, This particular decision is historic because it puts a glaring spotlight on fossil fuels and uh, the renewable energy and energy efficiency targets are very well embedded. Um, And of course, the concern about loopholes, but on 1.5, the language has been strengthened. There are several references now to 1.5 in the energy section And uh, which was not the case in the previous drafts. And that's exactly what we were pushing. And of course, vulnerable countries. Um, Unless you link your mitigation ambition with uh, 1.5 degree target, because otherwise, if you're looking at a much longer term timeline of 2050, that doesn't help. So now the paragraph 27, which 28 which have a very direct reference of uh, talking about deep, rapid, and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in line with 1.5 degrees C pathways. This language has been lifted from the latest IPCC report, and um, that makes it stronger. Of course, we haven't got more specifics, Um, and in fact there's a call now to submit uh, the revised NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions or Climate Action Plans, as we call them, um, by 2025 for 2035, so the next, uh, to the following decade. So there are some very important hooks, which are going to uh, put pressure on countries to do more. And the reason uh, it is important, yes, um, you know, we temporarily crossed two degree threshold, uh, even, uh, but we are still had one point two degree on an average uh, compared to pre-industrial era. And staying below 1.5 is absolutely fundamental for us in India, but much more importantly, other vulnerable countries uh, in in the Pacific. And that also connects to your point, Kunal, on loss and damage. So um, more fossil fuels and more emissions equals more loss and damage. So we need to make sure that we stay below 1.5, but of course then have ways to deal with it. Um, And I'll also come to adaptation in a bit, but let me respond to your loss and damage question On operationalization. Uh, Again, what we got on the very first day of COP28 was a compromise. Uh, After 30 years, at least we got the decision to get it over the line. Uh, Not enough, only $700 million. And that's not new and additional. That's the biggest point. If you take money from mitigation and adaptation, you are actually making things worse. Um, uh, That's why I was saying we need money for all three pillars of climate action. Um, But at the same time, we do see it as a major victory for climate justice movement and civil society, um, vulnerable countries that our push really worked. And we could uh, put, uh, you know, uh, put this issue right uh, at the very core of the conversation that we need to deal with the consequences of climate change. And we'll continue building on it. So World Bank is going to host it, but certain conditions have been put which World Bank has to agree to make sure that it is accessible to all Countries, but also communities. That's a new provision that we have been able to include, and not listen to its board, but listen to the loss and damage board and the COP uh, processes. So, I, I would say that I, we have put certain safeguards uh, in that process. Your renewable energy point, in fact, and we are now, you know, still looking into details. But on technology, uh, this was, you know, of course, it was not uh, in the media as much, and you will hear more, but. Countries really pushed because there is an ongoing technology um, uh, stream of discussion. And this time they have been able to secure um, a program that's going to uh, look at technology transfer and development much more closely, building on the work uh, that Technology Executive Committee has been doing. And they have, they have decided to establish a technology implementation program. And that has to be supported by the financial mechanism. This has been extremely slow and for developing countries, as they transition towards renewable energy, this is absolutely critical. Um, and we know that there are trade uh, barriers involved and there are, it's far more challenging, uh, but it looks like as a package, developing countries really insisted upon it and there's going to be some movement going forward.
0: That's a uh, sort of a positive outcome indeed. Um... Karthik, coming back to you on the on the point you made about uh, you know uh, fossil fuel, uh, rather oil and gas, mainly being a major revenue source for uh, the government of India and the sort of catch twenty two that the government is uh, at, and um, the fact that in tandem both needs to be developed renewable energy and fossil fuels for some time to come. Some would say that. India cannot, even though the per capita emissions of of, uh, uh, India and several other emerging economies far, far lower than um, industrial economies and the historical emissions, uh, most certainly overwhelmingly are on the uh, industrialized nations. Some would say that um, these sort of these um, global south and global north binaries need to really um, sort of be overlooked given the crisis that we're facing. Um, and that uh, nations like india which which in the next decade are going to be developing much more rapidly uh, might have to i wouldn't want to use the term leapfrog but uh, you know it's it appears to be the the frame that one can refer to uh, leapfrog to a renewable um, era faster than um, than you know um, one would one one would think practically achievable. How do you uh, respond to that? And is that really possible? Right.
2: I mean, it, it absolutely is. And I think it comes down to, you know, what we've set up for ourselves as the economic paradigm for growth. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we are still very much you know, wedded to the notion of what the GDP brings. And uh, as far as that is concerned, uh, Kunal, you know, just some stark uh, contrasts, right? For instance, Coal is literally a commodity that we can dig up from beneath our feet, of course, with environmental consequences uh, in the mining areas, uh, and is valued at somewhere around uh, lakh and fifty thousand crore in output today. Uh, at the same time, the solar PV sector, assuming that you know coal and solar PV are basically you know head on uh, com- competing with each other, uh, the value at today is that is less than seven thousand crore within the domestic economy, right? A lot of it is basically imported and then there is value add. So you can see that, you know, coal is literally about, you know, 20 times the size of the solar economy as far as domestic value add is concerned. And uh, this is basically money that circulates in the economy. And then in addition to this comes all the royalties and payments to Government of India, right? From the other fossil fuels. I'm just talking about coal here. So bottom line is that we need to run the economy. And the problem is that, you know, that is, seems to be the narrow focus. Um, well, one can say that, you know, as a developing, developing economy, uh, livelihoods must come before environment protection in some way, right? That has always been that, uh, uh, you know, the that, that trade-off that has been always discussed, which is not a, it shouldn't be a binary. It shouldn't be a binary between environment and development. Uh, uh, while no government has ever explicitly said that, many of uh, you know the approaches do seem to suggest that you know we can put up with a little bit more environmental degradation than perhaps a developed country can so you know whether it is for instance our air quality standards uh, you know uh, significantly more lax than what the world health organization puts out um, and, and you know of course the lungs of the indians are very much the same as the lungs of any uh, you know anybody living in the global north so in that sense unless we really start valuing Uh, What is it that we are getting from economic growth? And how how does it speak to equity of outcomes for different uh, parts of the population? I think we will continue to prioritize what works for this majority, right? I mean, they may not even be a numerical majority. Uh, they may be a majority in the way that they control some of the decisions that are being made, right? Uh, One could call it, you know, industrial vested interests, could be corporate interests. And it could even be just the interests of uh, PSUs. Uh, but all said, all said, all said, each of these stakeholders ultimately is, you know, trying to do this you know, to make India's GDP grow, uh, which is where, you know, as government and as, you know, stakeholders advise government, all of us must come together and think what should be that metric through which we should assess whether this next step that we're taking for, you know, economic growth also speaks to our long term environmental interests and whether it will help us sustain, uh, you know, this this economic growth in the long run. Right may not be this level of economic growth, but in terms of economic growth that allows our population to uh, live a better quality life, where uh, you know we aren't having so many disability affected life years on account of you know air pollution and you know degradation of the environment more generally, right? Our water sources, the quality of food that we eat, and uh, that calls for a bit of a paradigm shift. I mean, and will our population be willing to take that? Given that you know a lot of them have already seen that you know better quality necessarily comes from consuming more of all these resources suddenly you tell them you know what we have to consume less we have to consume differently especially when it's the time for the poor to consume it might sort of uh, come out sounding rich so uh, that's something that we have have to be wary about and i think a good communications effort to that extent and uh, you know empathy from a lot of the crowd is also important in this case right harjit your response to
0: it
1: well, I uh, I know Kunal you wanted it to be a, a debate and it's not turning it out that way because we are we are agreeing <laughs> with each other quite a lot <laughs> and I think yes. um, and this sitting in Dubai where consensus is a mantra I think it's it's fine um, so uh, I, I totally agree you know we have to de um, uh, you know the whole the whole notion um, that development has to be at the cost of environment in fact i i would argue that environment has to be at the center of our development and growth paradigm and growth also i don't know for how long even in a country like india there's the whole concept and disc- discourse on degrowth has started of course rich countries have to do more i'm not uh, trying to ap- apply that to developing countries where we still have millions of people who don't have access to adequate uh, supply of electricity uh, or other energy sources uh, but the whole, you know, we as India have to have our own model of development. We are blindly following the same model that has brought destruction uh, in the first place. And that innovation, of course, we are beginning to talk about life and there still remain concept. And at the at the very implementation level or in our day-to-day life, I don't see anything changing. Uh, you know, we are still consuming a lot and and there's a lot more push to um, promote our markets and and manufacturing and everything, which goes against um, a lot of things. Yes, there are certain good things. I find natural farming, for example, being promoted, which is good for environment. But I I think we need to do a lot more if we really want uh, to implement the principles of sustainable lifestyles that we that we promote in the in the global space. So India has to become an example by doing it and by not just talking about it and that and for us now being the most populous country we are we need to take that responsibility. Um, Yet I know that in the international space we do talk about equity and I'm one of those who uh, who would advocate that rich countries have to do more and India needs to be given more time. But as a citizen, I, I. would like to see my government doing a lot more, and as Karthik was saying, you know, look at the air pollution problem. I think we should be we should be tackling it much more uh, strongly with those robust policy and implementation measures.
2: Kunal, if I may just add to add to this particular point, right? I mean, as I said, there is very difficult for us to really disagree here. But one thing that I would say, which kind of maybe uh, reaffirms, you know, the, the stance of Government of India, is this. Development is intricately linked with our ability to consume more energy, right? There's almost no society that has managed to develop in the conventional sense. Now, as I said, uh, redefining development is another thing without increasing levels of energy consumption. So, for instance, in today's time, air conditioning is uh, almost becoming a prerequisite, right? There are there are cases where, you know, many many pockets of India, people are apparently, you know, taking sleeping pills to be able to sort of, you know, get to sleep in the oppressive heat of the night. Right, because of the humidity. Now that's a terrible situation. Right now, do you want to put you know part of your population even through that kind of tragedy? You don't. Now, in the interim, the only solution that's available is to increase the levels of electricity production to cater to that you know that peak demand in July and August when you know it becomes excessively oppressive because of the humidity. So we can't fault the system, and if that is going to have to come from coal, because you know climate change is upon us. Right. What do we do? So in that in so in that particular, you know, case, there is certainly, uh, you know, a case for India to say that, you know what, I'm going to use whatever is in my, uh, uh, you know, my net. Right. And if it's coal, that's domestic. And if I have the power plants that are able to burn it, I'm going to have to do it. So I think in the short run, there is an excuse for India to sort of continue doing what it does so that its population doesn't have the, you the, you know, the carpet dragged from under its feet. But in the long run, we need to figure out, are we investing enough to ensure that we are adapting to that future, you know, and that, you know, we have the uh, and the ability and the, you know, and our population basically is able to be productive in a way that they can actually adapt to that future. Yeah. Right. You know, it's interesting to hear both of you uh, talk because, I mean,
0: I am, uh, you know, you, Karthik, you're in Delhi, uh, Harjit, you're in Dubai, and I'm here in Chennai, and we've just faced one of the worst uh cyclones uh, and one of the largest rainfalls that uh, Chennai has ever recorded Um, and uh, the city has been flooded and I I hardly know anyone who's not been affected by it Uh, and there is a lot of attribution to climate change that is being discussed um, although not thoroughly but uh, most certainly it is being discussed. So uh, to to, uh, Karthik's point yes we climate change is already upon us we are already facing all this and uh, the fact that uh, we need to rapidly adapt is uh, is you know i don't think it needs further emphasizing but having said that uh, this this primary model that you're talking about in fact uh, you know harjit we carried a piece about uh, the conversation on degrowth uh, and that um, that you know economic policy itself needs to sort of be reframed in the way growth is measured and that gdp has been given primacy for f- for far too long. Uh, But having said that, there is no other alternative or an alternative paradigm that has emerged. And as Karthik said, energy consumption is always seen as a prerequisite for any kind of um, growth to take place. Um, So again, how do we define this growth again becomes an issue. But if we were to consider poverty alleviation in tandem with climate mitigation, are we at a point where nations like India, which are really climate vulnerable, need to really think much beyond looking at existing paradigms and coming up up with far more radical ideas? Uh, I say this uh, because, uh, for instance, you know, there are certain parts of Madras, uh, Chennai, where I live, which are actually below sea level, they're marshlands. But we have completely built up urbanisation there, and a radical idea would be to decide that over the period of next five years, that entire marshland is reclaimed and that population is justifiably, in a in a, as much of a socially just manner as possible, um, uh, relocated. But um, so is that? Are there are there really radical ideas that we need to think about going beyond the conversations that we're having about, for instance, say you know if we're if we're using up more coal, then we probably need to invest in efficiency, and then we probably need to invest in cap- carbon capture and utilization. Are we not really thinking about alternative paradigms seriously enough, Harjit?
1: So this very well connects uh, Kunal to my previous point on what development model uh, we have. As I said, I don't see India has an indigenous, our own developed model which we can say, yes, this is based on our traditional wisdom and, you know, all the principles that we stand for. Uh, and also a response to the current global challenges. So we are not only facing climate crisis and uh, you refer to how we have um, degraded and destroyed ecosystems. We are also facing a biodiversity crisis and uh, which we don't uh, really talk about look at the desertification that has increased in India Um, and uh, if I remember the data correctly one third of India's land is is facing desertification Uh, so we had a cop on that very issue um, big conference a couple of years ago so that's that's the reality it's again linked to a very development model now how we do it of course India must take a lead uh, and because we say how we have been living in harmony with nature and, and thankfully this model that we have adopted from the West is only a couple of decades and we still have memories and ideas and principles of, of our, our uh, you know, ways of life which are uh, much more um, about protecting nature. I, I want to connect that with the global discourse and uh, also be a bit more positive even if, even if we are living in a doom and gloom scenario. Sitting here in Dubai, where we have just concluded COP28, if you look at the text, uh, yes, we are disappointed, but there are certain good things that have happened. The whole conversation about just, equitable, orderly transition, these were very difficult words to even get. Equity was toxic or treated as toxic by rich countries, but we are beginning to land. The conversation is a little bit more, uh, I would say, um, empathetic uh, although rich countries have not put money on the table but they are beginning to recognize and in fact there was a very different process here called majlis which the uae uh, presidency ran which is which was much more about open conversation and that's what we need and that's why we come to these global spaces because it's a global challenge you know whether it's a development model or the carbon budget you know that we are beginning to recognize ipcc uh, talks about it degrowth we have to come to a point where we say this is the direction of travel and rich countries have to start you know, applying the, the concept of degrowth and then developing countries have to come up with their own model. So I'm I'm recognizing what you are saying, but I'm also trying to connect that with how we deal with it as a global community, uh, because the influences that are coming from the West uh, to follow the same economic model also have to be tackled if we really want to you know have a development which is which is in harmony with nature
0: right um okay i'll i'll shift gear a little bit uh, you know um i'll i'll sort of go back to the loss and damage fund um some might say given india's sort of growth trajectory you know we've we are claiming to be touching 3 mil, 3 trillion dollars as an economy quite soon we've already We've taken France's uh, um, GDP. We've, uh, uh, from a point of view of um, uh, what shall I say, um, foreign reserves and etc. India looks like a uh, India looks on the brighter side of what is what we would conventionally consider as economic growth. Is India doing enough to contribute towards uh, loss and damage? And is India doing enough globally? Um, given its position as a sort of a regional power as well, um to address climate change. Karthik, if I can
2: begin with you. Yeah, somebody was asking me exactly this question, you know, and uh, my thoughts in my mind were, you know, this is that dichotomy that face that India is always faced with, right? Where, you know, in the region that we occupy and you know, and speaking as in some sense, you know, the I guess the the head of you know the developing countries right because they all look up to us for, for our sheer size and for the diversity that we represent and for the you know and for the fact that we've all done all of this as a democracy right unlike many of those economies so in many ways india is a beacon for all of them and for that reason i think we need to ensure that we are able to translate and transfer a lot of our learnings and what things have worked for us uh, to many of these economies now whether that should uh, spill over to the economic uh, Space and for us to be able to actually contribute to the loss and damage fund for poorer economies, uh, certainly I think there is. India does that, right? India does that. It's not like you know, India is only a recipient or has been over the years of uh, international uh, development assistance. India does that, right? We open up. For instance, when Sri Lanka was in uh, dire straits, uh, we offered them a significant line of credit. You know, in the possibly in the the more, more than a billion dollars, if I remember. And um, you know, to countries in in the you know in the east of Africa, for instance, there is uh, still a lot of uh, soft power that plays out in the way that you know, for instance, we train their uh, workforce. You know, whether it comes to new technologies, uh, for instance, the Indian Institute of Technology is Madras has started a Zanzibar campus to basically have you know um, engineering talent developed in the, in that uh, country in Tanzania. So, in many ways, I think you know, India has a responsibility, and I think it'll do it. Uh, in ways where there is a, a soft contribution, right? The human resources that go from here, uh, the talent pool that basically, you know, speaks to it. And more importantly, there's a diaspora that's already sort of, you know, uh, providing a lot of that to these economies. I mean, half of the UAE, right, is effectively Indian. So in that way, I think India is already contributing to the way many of these economies are thinking about and, and creating economic opportunities. But I would say, you know, when it comes to actual monetary ones, uh, i think there are corners of india which aren't seeing the kind of you know um, uh, f- financial assistance that uh, they need so i think the imperative is for us to ensure that you know charity in some sense starts at home uh, but yeah that's that's my view on this uh, that's an interesting point like in terms of soft power we're not really
0: it's not something uh, sort of a tangible contribution to the current client, uh, loss and damage fund but uh, we're doing so outside of this framework um, Harjit,
2: your thoughts. And if I may, just, may I just add just one thing though, right? Just to kind of, you know, uh, apologies, Harjit. So, uh, if you look at, you know, just to counter, so to say, right, what, let's say, a China is doing today with uh, you know, the Belt Road Initiative. It's a, it's a very hard infrastructure driven uh, model of growth which is trying to replicate what China is uh, doing in its own country, right? Build out these massive systems, you know, exploit natural resources that are there in the farthest corners and build their economy through infrastructure spending. Now, if India wants to sort of, you know, alert them to alternative paradigms, which talks about, you know, local livelihoods in areas which are, you know, which are driven by, you know, decentralized energy, decentralized renewable energy, then India needs to intervene in, in more ways than just, you know, uh, preaching. Then perhaps an investment and perhaps taking these business models from India and helping provide capital to local populations is necessary. Yeah. So I just thought I, I'd add that, you know, as an additional way of, you know, sort of speaking to doing it differently from what China does. Yeah. Uh,
1: over to you, Harjit. yeah. So, my view has always been, in fact, uh, the last two years, India's engagement in the whole development of um, loss and damage fund has increased, which is good. And uh, National Disaster Management Authority, which now has a role to play in the adaptation and loss and damage uh, negotiations, really stepped up its engagement because they understand these issues much, much better. And of course, because it was fun, there was a natural tendency to think that India is going to be actually drawing money from it. Of course, the expectations from Pacific nations and other vulnerable countries, is India would be contributing. But now people don't link India and China in the same way. Anyway, my message to Indian government has been whoever I speak to and even I have written about it. India, being a large country, must engage with the process. And India did uh, in making sure that this fund is robust. Uh, and meets its objective in terms of scale of financing and making sure people get it. But India has a lot to contribute, you know, not just in monetary terms. We also have a decision here which is on Santiago network, which of course is not very highlighted in, in media. Now that Santiago network is going to be about the technical assistance that developing countries need. And India has such a huge... Technical and research capacity. Even you look at our satellite systems, look at our, our you know research capacity in terms of oceans and and habitat and agriculture and so on. India must contribute, and being part of that network, you know it starts with assessment. It starts with uh, you know moves to implementation and monitoring. And India must also learn a lot. There are countries like Bangladesh, who have done a lot more in terms of disaster management. And there are countries in Africa and other places. So I think that can be a good exchange. So not just look at it as a money, whether we take it or or, or contribute, but I think the whole aspect and we being highly vulnerable to climate impacts, I see it as a two way street, uh, where India engages with the issue a lot more. It's going to be quite a learning experience for us. And of course, being a large country, we have a responsibility to contribute.
0: Right. On that note, I think uh, last closing thoughts to both of you.
1: Well, I, um, I would say uh, I want to come back to the COP decision with the massive one, which we were definitely pushing for beyond loss and damage fund, uh, was phasing out of fossil fuels. We did not get the language on phasing out of fossil fuels. It says transitioning away, which is not as strong. But definitely it, it sends a very clear message that that's, this is the direction of travel. But where we are missing out massively is the how part of it and that has not been explained and this is where you know i'm also engaged with this whole initiative calling for a fossil fuel uh, treaty which is all about how and i think that conversation is important now we have countries uh, on the floor of um scop 28 colombia endorsed the treaty and actually asked for it because colombia wants to move away from fossil fuels because it's extracting and exporting india is dependent on it right we need to have a global mechanism. How do we move away from it? And it now that we are talking about what at COP28, next step is how, who does it, by when, so that we can actually phase out fossil fuels in a just and equitable manner.
2: You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm, I guess I've become a little cynical about the process of the COP over the years. Um, and it feels like, you know, some of these countries that are, you know, um, that are massive fossil producers, specifically the ones in the Middle East. While climate change is impacting India in a big way, it's just that I feel their relationship with the environment is so little in the, you know, in the countries that they live in and the level of dependency they have on just their external world production. I feel that these interests are very, very powerful. And uh, it's very likely, you know, that unless there is a big coming together of, you know, of uh, like-minded countries, not in the way that they have grouped up in the COP in the past, but of countries that are significantly impacted. And I think India needs to be the leader of that pack in some way and not necessarily just be, you know, overtaken by China's views on it uh, and push back significantly. And more importantly, we have to present a credible alternative development pathway for many of these economies that are looking to basically, you know, mimic what the West has done. Otherwise, you know, there'll always be this tentativeness, you know, oh, if they pull the plug on fossil fuels, what will we do? We don't have enough source of energy that is cheap enough. How do we develop it domestically? India has the ability to, I think, show the way uh, to a good part of the world and show that, you know, the significant cutback in the consumption is possible in finite time. Uh, Set targets for itself in a way that, you know, it's determined by domestic ambition and not by, you know, some international commitments. And at the same time, you know, build the industrial base domestically uh, and, you know, create jobs and opportunities. Right now, it just feels like, you know what, let's just go on with what we've been doing we just need more energy. And I think that's what will get us there. Um, in the short run, yes, certainly there is. You know, right now is India's moment. Everything is looking up. You know, the stock markets, you know, the third largest in the world right now, or I think it was third or fourth, has recently crossed in. So clearly a lot of things going well for the Indian economy. We just need to ensure that in the coming years, uh, we just don't get carried away by what we've done because status quo is not sustainable, uh, you know, beyond the next decade or so.
0: Right. So one consensus that appears to be very clear with with both of you. uh, And firstly, thanks uh, very much for this very insightful and rich conversation. Uh, The consensus appears to be that um, there needs to be a sort of a paradigm shift in uh, what we consider economic development or economic growth. um, And that, that India is well positioned to lead that conversation. And while um, the country may not necessarily be able to contribute to measures like the loss and damage fund, um, its soft power and its intellectual uh, capabilities, uh, the technological know-how and r and d can be used much more organically and much more um, uh, widespread in a in a sort of a uh, from a country level perspective which might which might actually augur well for for the country Uh, so on that note uh, thank you so much Karthik and Harjeet
2: for making time for this very insightful conversation thank you thank you Kunal thanks Kunal for having me thank you good luck Harjeet as you wrap up things there yeah
1: thank you